I remember when he first called me in, this is going back about almost two years ago. Uh, he's like, listen, I offer a lot of different services. I don't know how to advertise it because they're just too broad. So yes. if I'm going to take in an advertisement out in the local paper, I don't think I'm going to be able to articulate well what I'm doing. Why don't we try the personal branding approach where I can share the stories, the ways that I'm helping my clients um, and see if maybe people appreciate that. And I can give some of the, give over some of the knowledge that I've accumulated over my years in the industry and become a, you know, kind of a resource for people. And we did that. And within a couple, within, I would say four or five months, he had seen such an uptick in his business um, that one of his services that was at the time was doing $2,000 a month worth of that services uh, had increased to $10,000 a month. Wow. And that was just one vertical of services that he was offering. And thank God, I'm continuing to work with him and his team as they doubled their business literally year over year. Uh, and the only form of marketing that they've ever done in the last almost two years is the personal branding and LinkedIn marketing with me. Hi, just a quick request. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to write a review and leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself. So, Moshe, for those of us who don't know you, tell us who you are. Awesome, awesome. Abhishek, thank you so much for doing this. I really look forward to this and I hope that some of my own experiences and stories and ideas will be able to be of value to other people when they contextualize it to their own lives and their own experiences. Uh, We're all different um, and 7 billion of us in this world and we all bring something beautiful uh, that nobody else, nobody else of the other, you know, six billion and 999 million etc uh people in the world we are all special uh my name is moshe chapnik that is chap nick a tricky name uh yes. i actually spell it really crazy just to keep people on their toes the spelling <laughs> of the last name is chap is c z a p N-I-K. That's the Eastern European name, which is where uh, my father's father is from. Originally, he was from Poland. Uh, They emigrated uh, to the U.S. after World War II. Um, And my my father was raised in New York, uh, at which point, shortly after he got married, he moved out to Los Angeles uh, with my mother. And they had a beautiful family of which of eight children, and I am the youngest of eight oh. awesome kids. Um, so today I'm 24 years old. The beard throws most people off, but I'm 24 years old, uh, three years out of school. Uh, thank God I'm running two businesses and doing things that I dreamed of doing my entire life, and actually uh, making those dreams a reality. My main focus and translate main focus to where I make my most money uh, is personal branding and LinkedIn marketing. Uh, That's the concept of taking people that are really good at something, uh, professionals, uh, business owners, you know, salespeople, people that are 
are already already have market validation to to that they are good at what they do and now they come to me and i help them leverage the power of social media and specifically linkedin to augment their existing reputation with the power of the linkedin community and help take them from here to there and that's the idea anyone i interact with anyone i transact with anyone who gives me money my goal for them is that they came to me over here they need gonna leave me over here um and that's just me at my core i'm coming up with creative ideas you know sometimes things that are hard for other people to do that i'm willing to work hard and smart uh to accomplish building these services that are effective in taking people from wherever level of success that they have already attained on their own and taking them a couple more steps up higher uh, so that's who i am at you know the side business that i have i'm actually in the middle of transitioning uh from from one version one iteration of that to another uh i was the co-founder of a management company for the last year and we managed a co-working space uh in central new jersey where i live right now uh and we took that one location from eight members to 80 members um, wow and i'm phasing out my time over there and using the experiences that i've gleaned from that time from that last year uh when i walked into it i didn't know anything about co-working spaces uh, and i just fumbled my way through it um i had an idea of what i wanted to accomplish but basically keep trying keep trying keep trying screwing up trying and eventually uh the market uh, reacted and appreciated what we were doing. And now I'm in the process of taking that um, to the next level, uh, which is a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm young, so I still have a lot to learn. Um, yes. But one of the things that I, that I really am I'm busy with right now, like a, a real driving force that's coursing through my veins today is this idea that there are easy ways to make money. You know, mm. think of it from the perspective of if you're no, if you're good at selling, you can find arbitrage somewhere. There's always something that somebody has too much of and another person doesn't have enough of. And that's you can just go broker the sale of those two things from one person to another. And you, you're going to get a cut off the top. It's relatively easy. Uh, but when I look for what I want to accomplish, you know, as a 24 year old, what do I want when I'm 34, uh, 44? Um, and I look to things and I want to be building large organizations that are able to impact a large swath of the population. And I realized that a lot of times, you know, in the last, you know, two and a half years as being a business owner, I've chosen to go down routes that were easy. Uh, so, oh, cool. You, you need something. I got something to fill your need. Uh, and I realized that I really need to flip that on its head. And what I've now been focusing on is what is the path of greatest resistance that has the greatest potential impact on the world? Wow. Love that. And that's really what I've been focusing on. If you look, that's, I think the coworking space is a great example for that um, because it's a hot item. Everyone wants in and we work is struggling now and they're the legends, but they're struggling. They've made a lot of mistakes and other people are watching them and saying, wait, there's clearly a demand for a co-working space model. Uh, let me get in on it. 
And the last year I was doing something just like everyone else was. Anyone else in my industry, we find space that's available, um, maybe work out a good deal with the landlord and just try to flip it and try to sublease little spots of it. And I realized that that's just too easy. And I was thinking about, I was looking at the market and I don't know the exact numbers, but you know, the top two performers in the market are Regis and WeWork. Um, Regis has been there forever. The 60 year old real estate company. WeWork um, had tremendous amount of uh, VC funding to really expand at a rapid rate. Um, and then if you look at everyone else, the vast majority of the players in the, in the industry hover around, you know, one to 10 locations. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, why is that? Here we have an industry that on the one hand, you'll have WeWork and Regis that are involved with billions of dollars worth of real estate. And then we have everyone else is basically dealing with a million dollars worth of real estate, $3 million worth of real estate. And I was thinking to myself, what, what am I missing? What is the market missing? What are we all missing? And I think that when it comes to scalability of a business, when you look at companies that are doing, that are doing something on a large scale, there's something about them that is sticky. There's something unique to what they were doing that gives them the ability to scale on top of that, right? So WeWork made it cool to go to co-working spaces. So yes. I understand why they're capable of being the leader. And I'm looking at the other guys in the industry and I'm just not seeing anything exciting. So I went back to the drawing table and they came up with a business model that I believe is the path of greatest resistance. It means I'm not ready to share with, with uh, the world yet because I'm in the process of putting some things together on the back end, putting some yeah. financing, um, strategic point, uh, joint ventures together on the back end to make sure that we have a good chance of, of making this work. But mm. the guiding principle is what is the path of greatest resistance? The ones that everyone else in the industry is going to look at me and say, what you're doing? That's what you're doing. You're crazy. That's what I want. I want everyone else. I want all of my, competition to tell to think to themselves oh my gosh this chapnik dude is out of his cotton pink and mine and then i'm able to then go and say yes i made it work i helped a lot of people in the process i'm empowering people the marketplace proved me right and that's how i have a scalable business so that's just some of the ideas that i'm that i'm thinking about right now right right so I want to get into the WeWork stuff, but uh, I think we'll cover that later. Right now, sure. I want to take a step back and uh, just talk about your childhood a little bit. I mean, you have started two businesses at this young age. So was your upbringing that way or certain incidents took place in your childhood that took you to a path to entrepreneurship? And so it's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people in my position, a lot of really hungry people, people that are doing things that others perceive as daring or brave. Uh, a lot of us come from a lot of pain, a significant source of pain as children, um, whether it was the single uh, parent that, you know, there was just no money and super, super motivated to create wealth so that 
our family, our future families don't have to do that. Everyone has a different story. For me, surprisingly enough, I actually had a really, really good upbringing. Um, the youngest of eight, we were four boys, four girls, you know, nice and equal there. Oh. And my dad is a rabbi in Los Angeles, where I was raised, born and raised. And the cool thing is, you know, I do have a little bit of a hunger built into me from when I was a little, really young kid. And that's because I had awesome leaders to look up to. My parents are tremendous, tremendous individuals. Everyone that knows them uh, thinks the world of them, myself included. I have some older siblings that are really successful in their own ways. And success doesn't mean how much money they have. Um, yes. I'm, I'm the youngest of the family. I'm probably going to make more than all of my siblings. Uh, either by the end of this year or by the end of the next year. Um, I can say that with confidence. Um, but their success, their success is just being good versions of themselves. And I saw that from a young age. And that, yeah, I didn't do well in school. You know, Gary Vee talks about not doing well in school. I resonate yeah. a lot with that, with that story. Um, and I just said, I need to do something big. I need to do something massive. And, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, we... I, I've encountered growing up and then now, you know, entering the workforce and, you know, meeting and dealing and working with other professionals from different areas, being raised in different types of communities, different types of households. Uh, I realized something that was super, super powerful that my, my parents instilled in me when I was a little, a little kid. Uh, and this, it's this idea of respecting others. You know, m my dad's synagogue is a very unique blend of different types of people there, uh, all varying degrees of, of knowledge of what it means to be Jewish. Uh, some are really religious, some are less so. And we all come together in the synagogue and in my parents' house. And from a very young age, I was raised with this idea that everyone around the table looks different, but we all have amazing gifts to the world and we all have a purpose here uh and yeah i was influenced from growing up in the west coast of the u.s we have that that culture as well of kind of you know the more liberal-minded uh and relaxed way of life and letting other people live the way they want to but i realized you know now i'm living in new jersey and that's severely and heavily influenced from new york Manhattan and Wall Street. And yeah, it's 2020, but there's still certain components of that doggy dog world uh, that Wall Street is so famous for. Uh, yeah. And it, I think it's just so off. You know, I always compare Amazon to Alibaba. I think Amazon has got to go. Uh, they are way too greedy. Alibaba is the same kind of business of uh, really really successful as well and they have the mm -hmm. exact opposite philosophy you know jeff bezos wants to control the platform he already controls the platform now he's working on controlling the distribution and all of the shipping he wants to put out fedex and ups out of business and yes. he also gets involved in the manufacturing components alibaba goes the opposite approach alibaba says no no no, no. i just want to facilitate as much commerce in the most efficient way possible and I, you know, as someone who's raised in that kind of household, I really resonate with that. 
we're all beautiful. We're all different. We're all unique. We all have our own needs. I don't need to have world dominance through business. I want to have world facilitation through business. I want to use the tools of creating wealth and creating successful businesses that actually provide more value to the people that are consuming its goods and products and services than myself. And I want to be able to help as many people that way. Uh, So it's kind of a little bit of a different twist. There's a great story that I, you know, that I I like to share. Uh, I heard this uh, from a close confidant of Howard Schultz uh, from Starbucks. Uh, Yeah. As a religious Jew, this kind of touches on something that I'm, you know, really passionate about. Both of my father's parents were survivors of the Holocaust and they were both the sole survivors of their family. They didn't have any brothers or sisters that survived. Uh, so growing up, the Holocaust and the rebirth of of American Jewry after the words was a big a big influence in our lives. But they had this phenomenal story. Howard Schultz talks about uh, how him and a group of you know Inc. 100, uh, Fortune 100 CEOs did a trip to Israel, and they met with one of the big rabbis in Jerusalem at the time. He's no longer alive. Uh, but he's sat with some of the biggest CEOs in the world, and he asked them, what is the lesson of the Holocaust? And obviously, they felt uncomfortable. Nobody wanted to, you know, touch on such a, tuffy, on such a touchy topic. And someone said, oh, never forget. And he said, no, 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 that's not the lesson of the Holocaust. You know, bad things have happened to, in human uh, history in the past. They probably will happen again in the future. That's not the lesson. He said, you know what the lesson is? The lesson is that when there were four people stuck on one bunk bed in, you know, sub-zero degree weather in the Eastern European winter, and the Nazis gave these people in the concentration camps one blanket for the night, and they had to share amongst four people. You know how they stayed alive? And you know how they stayed warm? Because each person shared the blanket with the other. And when you have that mentality of share the blanket with the other person, everyone gets taken care of. If you just think, oh, I'm going to keep it for myself, well, then the next person is going to keep it for himself and the next person will keep it for himself and no one's going to get warm. But if you keep on ensuring that the other person is taken care of, then everyone gets taken care of. And in business, that's really a driving philosophy. We don't need to do it the way Wall Street did it in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I think by the fact that all of those things are, you know, gone for the most part, a lot of that sleazy business practices have been banned and outlawed. Uh, I think that kind of proves that that's not the right way to go. You know, today having, having a more uh, responsible approach to business and using business like it is, it's a tool using it to help people and provide, you know, real value to others, I think is the real play. Uh, and the ultimate long-term success, you know, people want different things from their businesses. For me, it's a legacy business. I want a business that's so good at providing value to its consumers that as the world continues to evolve and the world will always continue to evolve, it's they're at the forefront helping and continuing to help. Um, and if, you know, we take someone from here and then after a year they're here, we shouldn't just stop. We should see, okay, what else could we do? Can we push you a little bit higher? Awesome. Let's do it a little bit more and just keep on pushing, keep on helping others achieve more and, and grow. Mm.
and so do you think in the long run amazon will have to answer for the have to face the consequences of the business practices that they have been doing absolutely absolutely so here in the us um there was a really uh, i don't know how many years ago we're talking about probably 70 years ago i could be off on this uh there was a businessman by the name of john d rockefeller uh, yeah. he has a lot of famous standard oil uh, yeah standard oil so he really was the first uh modern uh businessman that had a monopoly and used yeah. that monopoly to hurt others to hurt the yeah. consumer to hurt the competition uh and he really inspired all of the anti monopoly regulation that we currently have in the US that i yes. believe is replicated in many ways across the world the issue is that those laws were signed into effect in the 50s and they're very antiquated at some point they're going to need to be uh updated for 2020 for the 21st century uh, i think amazon may very well be uh the impetus that required that updating uh to do you know just like john d rockefeller forced the government to say okay no more monopolies uh i think amazon is going to force the government to say okay no more 21st century monopolies uh you know this idea had they stayed out of manufacturing had they stayed out of distribution they probably would have they they probably would be okay but because they have this desire to be everywhere uh, and controlling all aspects of of the world i think i think they're going to run into some issues so long term i know people like betting on stocks uh i would never use amazon as a long term bet i think at some point i don't know when it is but maybe in the next decade uh those different divisions of amazon are going to have to be split apart and broken down that's what yeah, i that's yeah. just a core belief that i have right yeah i think the european union is already taking a few steps towards that because i think the major point of conflict is when you own a search engine and you own a manufacturing unit you already know what is the best product that is being searched for and so you have a competitive advantage against all the other sellers on the platform so that's the, that's i think a conflict in the business that needs to be sorted out yeah i i you know i i believe that when ever we're doing business relationships any business negotiation the way i i view a business negotiation is like this truth stands on its own it's just covered by falsehood so it's our job we all have biases uh and things that make us perceive the world differently than it really is and we really need to just strip all of those layers back and use our self-awareness to understand like no 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 this is really what it should be and i think you know jeff bezos has accomplished some of the most amazing things of any ceo or entrepreneur in modern history there's no question you got to give credit where credit's due but what's he doing now what's his next 20 year game plan i don't know i don't really like it as much as i liked his first you know 20 years of being in business yes yes and so uh, you talk a lot about your co-working space business what do you think went wrong with vivop greed good old fashioned greed um we were it's the co-working space model is a very tough industry to crack um think about it from this perspective why is regis successful regis is successful on large part because they own the real estate that they rent out 
Also, okay. think about it from in every business, right? You have, you know, there's different players in the field, in the industry that stack up on top of each other and everyone needs to be making a profit. So you have the raw goods and then you have somebody that sells the raw goods to the manufacturer who takes the raw goods and turns it into a finished product who sells it to the distributor. Uh, in real estate, you have the same thing. So you get into real estate. The first step is somebody owns a, a piece of real estate and you want to buy that off of him. So perhaps you have some money on your own. Uh, then you come to the bank and the bank gives you some more money and then you get the property and then somebody else comes and rents the property from you. Okay. So what happens when you have WeWork, WeWork comes to the landlord, pays retail price for the, for the co-working space and gets, and then offers it to the world a little bit at a little bit more of a cost than they're paying. The, but the margins are very, very tight. And I think that's the real challenge. When if you're doing the co-working space, if you're creating a co-working space and you're renting the space, unless you're able to come up with a creative uh, deal with the landlord, you really don't have a lot of margin. And right. I think that was the issue that WeWork had, being that they had so much interest from the world and had so much capital so they never cared to come up with that creative financial model and if you never care to come up with that creative financial model your margins are so small it just becomes so difficult to actually create a business that works and mm. silicon valley they've forgotten the principles that business relies on so they don't care so much about building businesses that work they just want businesses that grow uh, so there's, I think, a little bit of a disconnect between the CFO and the CEO. And I think that's just the, the main the main struggle that they had. And yeah, because Regis, just to finish this idea, Regis uh, buys their real estate and then subleases it to the public. So they have, they have WeWork's profit margin together with the landlord's profit margin. And now that's a profit margin that we can build a business on. So it, we just did grow slower than most uh, than than we work significantly. They've been around for 56 years because it costs a lot of money to buy real estate and you need a lot of capital and you need to keep on refinancing and getting more loans from the bank and more loans from the bank. So you you're forced to do it slowly. Uh, but ultimately, their business model uh, is more sustainable over the long term. Yes, yes. And I think uh, in terms of WeWork, its valuation was based on, uh, in, in terms of thinking about is it as a technology company and whether or not you consider it a technology platform, the core business model depended on signing long-term leases with the landlord and then giving it as a subscription-based uh, platform to other uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses. And so you had to sign leases for three, four years, and then you were dependent on monthly payments. And in these times, especially with COVID, I think a lot of uh, small businesses went out of those subscription and that yeah. might have caused a lot of stress. Yeah. Yeah. All of those things you see, the interesting thing about business is when you have a good business model and your business is being productive and effective in the marketplace, you can withstand the, you know, storms. But when you have a bad business model, the slightest storm can kick off this massive chain reaction that just ultimately leads to your demise. Um, 
I, I just as you know, back to my social media and personal branding side of things that I play in, I interact with a lot of high level CEOs of really successful companies. And the one thing I've noticed uh, during those, this last time period is that the businesses who were doing well before COVID and well, I mean, they had good processes and systems. They had good client base. They had good services. The services were actually making a good, a large impact in their clients' lives. Those companies are doing basically, from my experience, the, the companies that I'm involved with, basically just as good as before, if not better. Um, whereas the companies that were struggling because they were missing something, uh, whether it was a you know, lead generation or whether they were missing a business pro pro uh, process, those are really, really tanking right now. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, they taught us in school when we were kids, uh, you know, in math, you can do two plus two equals four in your head, you know it. But if you don't learn the rules, when you start dealing with bigger numbers, you start seeing the cracks and then you're yeah. not effective anymore. And a business is kind of the same thing. You know, it works just like when you scale up, you have to have really good business practices. Uh, so too, when there's outside stress coming onto the business, you need to have really good practices to be able to survive. Mm. And so how did uh, the COVID situation impact your co-working space business? So the way we did it was we saw this coming right away. We knew that we were going to get that the whole community was going to shut down. Everyone was going to go home. Uh, so we made a conscious decision that we were going to be as flexible as possible as no one had any clue how long this was going to last, uh, yes. how long people were going to stay at home for. And I said, you know, say I wouldn't be flexible. It's a month to month contract anyways with all of my members. So if I'm not flexible with them, I may earn more the first month or the first two months, but I'm going to lose all of those members and I'm going to have to rework to get all of them back into the space. So instead, off the bat, anyone that requested, we just waived the rental fee. Um, I think it was like 50, something like 50% of our members, we just waived uh, the entire rent for the, just month by month. We just, sure, you're, you don't, you're not ready to come back to the office. You're still staying at home. Um, you know, you you rent office so you can come back. You can come in at any point. You have a key fob, you walk in, you don't need us. Uh, it's your office just like it's ours. But if you still are struggling, we're happy to continue giving you free months. Uh, and we did that. We did that for a good uh, four months. We just waived rent for over 50% of our members. And people really, really appreciated it. And, and I found out we were right when I started seeing all of those headlines and articles of WeWork being really, really not nice to their members and not yeah. helping them get out of contract. Uh, and I feel like, you know, this is back to where the dog eat dog world uh, meets, uh, you know, the upbringing that I, I was fortunate enough to have. And it's just like, people are struggling. I'll figure out how to make the business work. Don't you worry. You, you yeah. take the time figure yourself out. I'm here to help in any way, but I'm not, if you need uh, to take a couple months from paying rent, no worries. Take the time you need, get back on your feet and use this opportunity to fix whatever 
things are broken in your business and just come back stronger than ever before. Wow, that's great leadership on your part. Yeah, I mean, we try. Listen, we're here to do good. Uh, we're here to do good and we got to, you know, even if it hurts us sometimes, uh, but sometimes that's, when you, that's exactly when you need to do good. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to take a step back and talk to you about your college years. So uh, did you go to college? And if you did, uh, what did you study there? So I went to a Jewish college, a college of Talmudic law. Um, I actually never fully graduated. I made it almost to the end, but I didn't, I never actually got a degree. Um, that was in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois. Great city. Love that. Made some awesome, awesome relationships there. Uh, really grew a lot in, in self-awareness, uh, learning about myself there and what I wanted to accomplish in the world. Those were key years. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I'm not, I don't, I have a hard time sitting. Uh, this interview is about the longest I've sat today. Uh, <laughs> and school kind of requires you to be able to sit for long periods of time. Uh, I, I just don't learn the same way that most people do. I learn from practice, from doing. Uh, I have to figure it out myself. I have to make my own mistakes. And school gave me a lot of lessons in life. Um, but ultimately, I knew I couldn't last there very long. And I just made the plunge to just, you know, hit the workforce before I went too crazy. You know, it's the kind of thing like, when you know you're in a situation that maybe not ideal for you, you know, but there's benefits to being there. It's a very fine line that you have to balance, you know, that you have to walk and, and balance to make sure that you don't stay too long and that you don't leave too early. Yes. And yeah, I was surrounded by good people. My rabbis from school were really, really helpful for me and in determining when was a good time for me to go. Uh, and ultimately we made the switch, uh, took two dead-end jobs one after another uh those were my best worst years of my life uh it lasted about one year um and really what i liked about it was it taught me what i was really good at and what i was really bad at uh, i learned that i was bad at data entry uh, i learned uh, that i have a hard time with bosses um you know that was it was a lot of fun you know I was the kind of guy who had, I, I had always had creative ideas. I always had unique ideas, big ideas. Uh, and frankly, they scared a lot of people. Mm. And I used yeah. to have this interaction, this back and forth on a regular basis. Once I left school, uh, where I would share an idea with someone, whether it was a supervisor, a boss or a coworker. And they would say, no way, that's not possible. Don't do that. That's crazy. And I always used to respond well, that's unfortunate. I guess you're going to be like everyone else that argues with me. So <laughs> once I would say that, they would be like, wait, what am I missing? Maybe, maybe this chapter guy is actually good at something. Uh, they'll be like, well, what happened the other time? And I always <laughs> used to answer, unfortunately, we will never know because they just <laughs> didn't give me the chance. Yeah. And after saying that enough times, I'm realizing to myself, I'm thinking to myself, why am I still doing this? Why am I still relying on other people's visions uh, and having to conform with that? How will I ever know whether my ideas are, are good or not? Whether I am person, as a person, are go I'm good at things or not? 
if I'm constantly relying on conforming to other people's standards, ideas, and goals, and I'm never allowed to be my true self, I'll never know whether my true self is a good self or not. Yeah. Uh, so I made, I made that choice to, you know, it was interesting. I, you know, let's talk about the social media side for a little bit because this played an integral role. And I think that this is something that could be valuable to anyone that is currently working uh, for another person and loving it, but they're worried about the future. Uh, I don't say entrepreneurship is for everyone. We all have different ideas, different things that we want to accomplish. Uh, so let's say you're not the person that needs to be their own boss. You enjoy working for the right boss, a good boss, you know, someone that helps you grow. But you're worried that you might plateau. How do you prevent yourself from plateauing? So about six months after I had left school, I started a marketing internship uh, where I just, you know, was a fly in the wall and, you know, a boutique marketing, marketing and branding firm. And I realized, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know if at the end of this internship, I'm going to get a good job or not. And I started posting every day on LinkedIn. And I didn't pretend to be entrepreneur or CEO of anything. Everyone's a CEO. Everyone and their brother is a CEO. No. I wrote on my LinkedIn profile, I am a marketing intern at Artec Marketing. And I would just share what was going on, stories that were happening on a day-to-day -day basis, ideas that I had, uh, experiences. And I, over, over the next couple of months, I had built up this nice following of, of professionals that, were, that appreciated my fresh perspective on the business world. I was literally six months out of school, and I was learning a ton, and I was just sharing my process with everyone. Uh, and at the, at the end of the six-month marketing internship, and the, my, my job, at the, my boss at the time didn't make me a job offer that really resonated with me. I'm like, okay, LinkedIn, let's do this. Anybody knows of a job for me? I'm looking for XYZ type of marketing job. I want to go in-house, uh, leverage what I've learned on the agency side and now go in-house and get some more focus. I had like a whole dream job that I, that I cooked up and nobody offered me a job from that post. But what I did get was four strangers who I never talked to in my life reach out to me on LinkedIn. They DM'd me and said, hey, can you help us with our LinkedIn marketing? Wow. And I'm like, cool. I'm 21 years old, and these business owners want my help. I don't know anything about what I did. I just know that I did something. So yes. that, this was two and a half years ago. This began the process of reverse engineering what I did for myself and trying to replicate it for others, uh, which, you know, it's, it's a constant evolution. I'm constantly improving my business, constantly improving the service. Uh, you know, I, I make a joke, like every three to six months, my clients know, I call them up and I say, hey, uh, I've been testing out such and such. I had this idea, I've been implementing it and it's blown my mind. We were doing it all wrong the last little bit. Uh, we need to change it now and improve. And every three to six months, without fail, sometime in that time period, I'm going to flip my business on its head. And, you know, Gary Vee used to say something that really, really resonated with me. And I was, if you're not going to put yourself out of business, somebody else will. You know, really? and that really resonated with me. And I'm just, you know, it's so funny because like it started, I started, I was like, you know, just basically a glorified copywriter writing posts for people on LinkedIn, for executives on LinkedIn. 
and then became more of a social media manager where I, you know, included more services into that suite. Um, and now it's becoming more of a personal branding consultant and it's constantly evolving. Who knows what's next? There's no way to know. Uh, some people think like I'm the kind of guy that's really planned out and I have visions and I have clarity. I know what I want to accomplish, but you know, what I don't know is how I'm going to accomplish my goals. Uh, there's no way to know, you know, uh, we're just trying We make mistakes. We pick ourselves up. We continue going forward. We mess, we mess up again. We do it again. Uh, it's constant, constant evolution and we're never done. We're never, never done. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of people build their own personal brand on LinkedIn or maybe they build a page on TikTok or maybe they build a page on Instagram. And you were that one person who took that skill of building your own leverage on LinkedIn and built it as a service for other businesses. Talk to us about that transition. How were you able to just go back and look at what you were doing, peel all the layers and then build it as a service for other businesses? Because it's difficult yeah. to replicate your success with other different kinds of clients that you're talking about so so you touched on something in your question i don't know if you know yourself how uh important this question is uh the issue is like this i i challenge every single person watching or listening to this find just answer this answer this one question to yourself do do does everyone's social media content look more or less the same How many unique creators are there on social media? Right? We have this very, very few. Uh, yeah. For me, it comes natural because I'm just a little bit of a unique person and I'm motivated to be unique. So I make sure that in every aspect of my life, I'm, I'm being different. Uh, for the, you know, I'm challenging the status quo to, to obtain an optimal result. Uh, but for the vast majority of us, we look at the people that are really successful in something, let's say social media, we look at the best, the biggest Instagram influencers, the biggest LinkedIn influencers, the biggest TikTok stars. And we say, oh, that's working for them. I should do the same. And we end yeah. up kind of like echoing the top 100 creators in every platform. And that doesn't work for the very simple reason is there are 7 billion of us on this planet and we are all different. There's not one human being that's alike. There are no two alike human beings. And we need to understand that we're different, that we're unique, we're special. And to just follow along what Gary Vee does and assume it's going to work for us is a mistake. Because what works for Gary Vee works for him because it's him. And what works for you works for you because it's you. But it's not going to be the same strategy. Uh, and that's really my main motivation at this point uh, in, in, my, in my business is how do I figure out how to make you the best version of yourself and to position your, your uniqueness, your professional uniqueness, as well as your personal uniqueness. You know, I think about it like this. As a business owner, I've created my businesses as extensions of myself. Uh, they're manifestations of me. They're mini me's, you know? And yes. I, I've chosen to do things uh, in the business, in my professional career, uh, based on who I am at my core. So 
that's become a real focus on that. And, and that I do during my personal branding sessions, which cost $2,000. It's a one-time fee. It's nice and expensive, uh, but the value is unparalleled because if you're going to look like everyone else on social media, you will not grow a community around yourself. You will not grow a personal brand. If you don't go a personal brand, you can't take your existing business to the next level. Uh, so it's become really important to do a, a deep dive, psychology-based. It's all based on the psychology of who you are as an individual and how that manifests itself into your professional life. Uh, and then once we understand those two pieces, then we know what narrative we need to build on social media. What should people think about you? And we don't need to, you know, we don't need everyone in the world to, to know this about you. We only need the people that appreciate that to know about you. Yeah, your target right? audience. We, we talk this, you know, in marketing, it's, there's basically, in branding, there's basically first positioning, first position branding, which is, you know, the Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Apple, you know, those first names that you think of when you, when you, when you hear an industry. Mm-hmm. And then there's everyone else. And everyone else has to, they, they can try to take first position marketplace, uh, you know, by outspending 10 to one, you know, the biggest, the biggest name in the industry. Or you can say, let the biggest name be the biggest name. I have used my self-awareness to understand that this 20% of the segment of the population really, really benefits from my services. I and mean, the way I'm structured my business becomes a unique emotional benefit to my clients that they can't get anywhere else. Let me just focus on those 20%. Mm. And that's really what we focus on on the personal branding side. Right, right. And so could you give us an example about a business owner or a business that was stuck at some place, you went in, used your personal branding skills, that $2,000 session you talked about, and how you were able to elevate that business to the next level? And uh, how do you uncover those psychological uh, or maybe details regarding the business owner, the business, how do you uncover those things? Awesome. So let's, let's talk about it. I'll give you two examples. One example was a fellow by the name of Joseph Kahn. Joseph Kahn uh, is the CEO of a realty advisory firm based out of New Jersey uh, called the YK Group. Uh, the YK Group does everything that a real estate investor uh, needs help with, uh, whether it's you know, reviewing potential real estate deals uh, to, uh, to see whether they're good deals or not, or to helping facilitate that deal, make sure it's successful, um, whether it requires some sort of construction and getting necessary uh, municipal uh, permits, uh, then managing the, the asset, a lot of the different pieces that real estate investors deal with. And I remember when he first called me in, this is going back about almost two years ago, uh, he's like, listen, I offer a lot of different services. I don't know how to advertise it because they're just too broad. So yes. if I'm going to take in an advertisement out in the local paper, I don't think I'm going to be able to articulate well what I'm doing. Why don't we try the personal branding approach where I can share the stories, the ways that I'm helping my clients um, and see if maybe people appreciate that. And I can give some of the give over some of the knowledge that I've accumulated over my years in the industry and become a, you know, kind of a resource for people. And we did that. And 
within a couple, within, I would say, four or five months, he had seen such an uptick in his business um, that one of his services that was at the time was doing $2,000 a month worth of that services uh, had increased to $10,000 a month. Wow. And that was just one vertical of services that he was offering. Mm. And thank God I'm continuing to work with him and his team as they've doubled their business literally year over year. Uh, and the only form of marketing that they've ever done in the last almost two years is the personal branding and LinkedIn marketing with me. Uh, so that's one example where what he was doing was so, uh, was so important to the industry, but also so broad and all encompassing that it's really, really difficult for him to advertise and just sharing content, stories, expertise, opinions, values, uh, created that community, that network that really supported him and helped him grow his business. That was one example. The other example is someone by the, a fellow by the name of Zevi Lamb, who's also works kind of in the real estate field. Uh, he services plumbers. And he had come to me uh, after being active on LinkedIn, posting every single day for four months. And in the four months that he was posting, he had generated, I think, three or four leads and none of them ever closed. He never made a, a penny from being active every single day, probably between a half hour and an hour every single day on LinkedIn. And he didn't make a penny for his efforts. Okay. Uh, and he came to me and I said, you know, I think you're copying other people. I don't think you're showing people what makes you unique. And we did the personal branding session and we gave him the custom, you know, that bespoke roadmap for content creation. And he really ran with it on his own. And one month later, I reached out to him. I said, Zevi, what's going on? Talk to me. Uh, he said, Moshe, my numbers, my engagement rates doubled. Uh, I've had five leads in the last month. That was more than the leads of the four months prior. And I closed my first deal from LinkedIn. Wow. And what that really showed me is if you're pretending to be someone that you're not on social media, and you're hoping to get business from that, it's not going to work. Because what happens is you're going to attract a different type of person uh, that is really not a good fit for you. And they're going to see your content and they're going to be like, oh, wow, this guy's my kind of guy. And they're going to need your services. They're going to pick up the phone. They're going to call you. And within 30 seconds of that first conversation with you, they're going to realize that you're a totally different person. Yes. And what attracted them to you is no longer existent. Mm. And at that point, there's no way you're closing the sale. So that inconsistency on the personal branding side from what happens in social media to what happens uh, in real life, uh, that's a real, real liability that a lot of people suffer. So if your conversion rate from you know, a, a social media organic campaign is not really, really high, right? If you're not closing 50% of the leads that come in, of the incoming leads, something's wrong. You want to reconsider that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so suppose I have a small business owner in some part of the world and I haven't used LinkedIn before. What advice would you give to somebody like that who is, who is uh, coming to LinkedIn for the first time on the platform and has maybe no experience with content creation? And so what is the roadmap, roadmap that you would give to that person? in terms of how to create content and what to post and what kind of stories that resonate with people on the platform. 
Sure. So I, I tell everyone that, that uh, works with me, uh, in the process of becoming a client, one of the things I make very clear to them is what we do is not rocket science. It's not brain oh. surgery. You can figure it out on your own. Uh, you'll figure out the, the best practices. Uh, the, what I tell people to keep in mind is share your passion, your ideas, and your experiences. Those three things are really what makes you unique. And share about and share how those passions, ideas, and experiences are trans are you know infused into your business, uh, and what that emotional benefit uh, your clients are receiving from that. So kind of set that expectation of what they can expect from working with you, uh, and don't spend too much time on it. Be very very careful that. Uh, you're actually using LinkedIn as a tool for business development and not just a waste of time. Uh, yeah. So be intentional about, about that. Be mindful about that. Yes, yes. And so could you give us a couple of examples about people you follow and brands you follow that are really uh, doing extremely well on LinkedIn uh, that you uh, try to replicate in terms of the content they are posting and the stories they are telling? Yeah, so I, I'm going to share the funkier ones. First of all, all my clients are awesome. So you yeah. can uh, follow my clients' accounts. Um, <laughs> but, but more seriously, uh, there are some people that are just doing things differently, and I really respect and appreciate that. Uh, so one fellow, and I'm not talking about massive influencers. I'm talking about just your regular guy. Um, yeah, yeah. One fellow is Travis Chambers. Uh, okay. He actually made it to like Forbes 30 under 30, but he's a really cool guy. Wow. Um, uh, Travis Chambers has some, uh, I think his company name is Chambers Media. So he's a cool guy to look out for. Uh, then there's the CEO of Dude Wipes. I forgot his name. Maybe his name is Sean Riley. Uh, really, really awesome guy uh, who's totally crazy with his content. Um, he was actually on Shark Tank. So he's a, he's a cool guy to, to follow. Uh, really, everyone has good things to them, uh, but I like those that keep it business related. You know, Patrick but David is awesome. Ryan yeah. Serhant is awesome. These are yeah. business leaders that are really, really good. Uh, you know, yeah. on my on my Instagram account, I besides for a couple of family and friends that I follow, I basically only follow uh, Ryan Serhant, Patrick but David. David Melter. David Melter is awesome on all platforms. He's a really, really good guy. Um, yeah. Shares a lot of these values that I share. And these are, these are some of the people that I really, really respect. Yeah, yeah. I was actually listening to an interview of Brian just before coming to this interview. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the interesting things about Ryan Serhant. Uh, when I first got into social media marketing, uh, I used to look up to Gary Vee a lot. Mm. Um, and I realized, and I try to model my service based off of what the way he was operating. Uh, and yes. I realized that it's really an issue because Gary Vee doesn't put in a lot of intention into the content that he puts together. He has teams of people following him around, documenting everything. And everything that goes out is something that's true to his core. Yes, But there's not a lot of strategy that goes into why this piece, uh, why that piece. It's just, yeah. this is true to his core, share it with his audience. And it works well for him because his audience is so big 
and he's yes. sharing ideas that are uh, things that a lot of people can get behind, uh, mm. that that are are valuable to the vast majority of the world. So it works to help his persona, which helps him in business. So by him being a celebrity business, you know, celebrity entrepreneur, gets him through the door of some of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, but I really started appreciating Ryan Serhant and his entire team, his team, you know, Joe, uh, what's Joe's last name? Maybe Joe Larsezi. I don't remember his last name. The executive producer of Ryan Serhant's vlogs. These guys are smart. They are strategic about what they're trying to do. And if you look through, through their content, who are they trying to attract? Uh, they're trying to attract other realtors. You know, how are they attracting them? They're providing motivation, inspiration, tools, techniques, strategies. You know, if your local realtor in, I don't care what town you live in, thinks of Ryan Serhant as God when it comes to selling real, real estate, you're going to think of Ryan Serhant as God too. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's a really, really smart strategy to take. Uh, and I've, once I realized that, once, once that hit me, I actually started implementing that with a lot more of my clients. I said, who needs to think of you as being really, really good in order for it to position yourself in a really unique way? And I started doing it for myself as well. I started reaching out to other marketers. I was realizing that I was having marketers from all different backgrounds reach out to me and say, oh, you know, I know that you're really good at LinkedIn. Can you help me with this and this client? He's, I haven't been able to get engagement for him or uh, we're arguing about what the best approach for LinkedIn is. What do you think? And I, it, I realized, I'm like, wait, I'm helping all these people for free. Uh, I should capitalize on that. And I realized that if I'm more intentional about it and if I talk about different marketing companies that I help, with LinkedIn. And yeah, that's why I go by, oops, sorry. That's why I go by, you know, the LinkedIn rabbi uh, yeah. on social media. Hashtag LinkedIn rabbi is the easiest way to find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, the reason why I go by the LinkedIn rabbi is because if I'm your marketing professional's rabbi when it comes to LinkedIn, I could be your marketing rabbi too, you mm. know? And it's that positioning that I want in the marketplace. So I'm constantly improving my game and I'm not worried. I will put myself out of business faster than anyone else can. Um, That I guarantee you. But uh, meanwhile, I'm going to continue to help as many people as possible because when they view me as the LinkedIn rabbi, then the people who trust them for their marketing advice definitely trust me. Yes, of course. Yeah. And so you talk a lot about uh, Ryan and Gary. And so do you have mentors in real life or do you consider these to be your virtual mentors and try to follow the footsteps. Matthew McConaughey said it best. Who are you aspiring to be? Someone once asked him, Matthew, what are you, what are you working for? Uh, he, so he said, let me give, give me a couple of days to come back. I'll get back to you. And he came back and he said, you know who I want to be? I want to be Matthew McConaughey in 10 years from now. Mm, that's interesting. So my mentor is kind of myself. Obviously, I learn from everyone. So yes. I'm the kind of person that I'll meet a little kid on the street and, you know, we'll be talking just because he's one of those kids that's not shy. And I'm going to learn something from him. And I don't know where, I don't know what, I don't know how, but I try to learn from everyone and anything because we all have unique 
backgrounds, unique ideas, unique experiences. Uh, and there's always something to learn from somebody. So I kind of view the world as my mentor. Um, and again, my aspirations for, for constant growth between those two, uh, I kind of make sure that I'm always working towards or almost always working towards growth. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, uh, I was talking to Jamie McDonald the other day, and he's the kind of a person who reads a lot of books and uh, go, goes through a lot of interviews to just uh, take away business lessons, maybe motivate himself. And on the, on the other hand, you have people like Gary Vee who don't consume so much content, but they just study people and study the environment, and that's how they uh, learn in business. And so which kind of a person are you? Um, in a weird way, uh, I'm like a third breed. So I do read a little bit, not as much as I would like to. As a child, I loved reading. Uh, fortunately or fortunately, I'm busy enough doing uh, things that make me really uh, productive and fulfilled and happy. So I don't spend as much time reading. But there's some awesome business books. I love the memoir style. I don't like, you know, business textbooks. Yes. I like Phil, you know, Phil Knight wrote a book. He's the founder Beautiful of book. Nike. She's sure awesome. an awesome Beautiful book. Beautiful book. Howard Schultz wrote Onward. Awesome book. Tony awesome Shea, book. Delivering Happiness. Awesome books. Awesome. So I do enjoy that. Um, I do enjoy learning from the people around me. But mostly I enjoy learning from my own experiences, my, my own mistakes. I'm not yeah. worried. I'm not scared to fail. I was just talking to a CEO during COVID. We were talking about, you know, how we were all doing crazy things during COVID to, to grow and, and use that opportunity uh, productively. And, you know, people always say entrepreneurs are risk takers. And to be honest with you, I actually consider myself more risk averse than the average employee. The average employee is hedging all of his bets on this one person called his boss. Yes. Right. And you're totally reliant on that boss. I've spread out my risk amongst many clients. And even if I lose one, I can pick up another one somewhere, somewhere else. Yes. Uh, so we were talking about like this idea of, of being able to make mistakes. It's not, you don't have to be uh, willing to take risks to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes regardless. We mm. all mess up. The question is what you're doing with those mistakes. And like, I told the CEO, like, I know if my business goes to zero, I can either start a new one or I can go get a job. I get job offers all the time. And I usually use those job offers to better pitch to them my services. Because if they tell me what they need, what their pain points are, and they're hoping that I can solve it as an employee for them, I can share, well, maybe I can't solve it as an employee, but as an outside vendor, I may be able to help. Uh, so I know I can find a job. I know I can work. I can maybe start a new business. Uh, but it's a matter of Keep on moving, keep improving because opportunities exist. You just need to be productive. Mm. And uh, it's easy to listen to this interview and think that you have all you have it all figured out. And uh, talk to us a bit about uh, the biggest challenges that you're facing right now. The biggest challenge without without fail is video. Um, there are many reasons why video is a challenge. Personally, I need to have video in house. Um, at a good cost that I can pass on to my clients with a little bit with a nice margin while still keeping it affordable to them. 
And I look at so many video production companies out there. My partner and I have met with close to 20 video production companies uh, and videographers in the last six months. And every single one, in my opinion, is missing the market. The market wants uh, social media appropriate video production. Uh, that means high quality of the creative and high volume. I don't care how fancy it is. I don't need it to be filmed on a $60,000 camera. I need it to be filmed on my cell phone. I need it to capture the essence of who I am. And I need you to be able to do it fast, to move quickly with me. Uh, yes. And that's the number one challenge I had. You know, I've reached out to some of the big videographers, but uh, I'm still waiting to hear back from some of them. I'm, I need someone in-house that can help me use the personal branding that I've done with my clients, use my client base and just create a video package. I need the vlogging. I need that commercials uh, that I can pass on to my clients for two, $3,000 a month. And for two, $3,000 a month, yeah, you should be able to get a, daily, a weekly vlog uh, and you should get once a month a, a creative commercial. And I don't need it to be filmed fancy. I don't need it to be edited fancy. I need it to be decent or a little bit more than decent. And I need the actual messaging to be really strong and powerful and impactful. Um, this is something that the market is dying for. And I feel like all of these guys that are, you know, many of these guys are getting started. Thankfully, we have YouTube and we have all the all those bloggers and, and, and superstars um, that are maybe motivating a new breed of videographers. But anyone who's like over 30 when that's in the video space. They're busy like, oh, I'm going to go to Hollywood and produce these really cool movies. And I'm like, I, I apologize to do this to you, but um, that's like 1.001% of the population makes, a, makes it to Hollywood. For everyone else, uh, there's a lot of opportunity. So if you're so stuck up on the quality of your video editing, uh, and that's why you need to charge me so much money to do a video shoot uh, that takes you a half a day to do, uh, or you're the kind of guy that comes down with a whole crew, you know, the person that's holding the coffee and the person that's holding the, the audio and the lighting. And it's like, dude, we need to create content that's compelling, that people want to watch. Uh, it doesn't need to be art. It needs to be compelling. It needs to talk to people. It needs to make people uh, move. It needs to move them. Uh, and that's all. I don't care how much you're going to charge me. Charge me a fraction of what you're charging and then I'll make you rich. Uh, so it's kind of that idea of, you know, sometimes you ask for too much from the marketplace and you don't get very far. So sometimes yeah. you need to be a little bit more humble, take less and, and use that less to grow more. Mm. And uh, the second part of the question is uh, talk to us about. Uh, so in the past 90 days, you might have faced one or two business problems where you were really stuck and you did not know uh, how to grow from there. And so talk to us about the, your biggest big breakthrough in the last 90 days, something that you solved. And it could be a little pivot that you made that has really made a big difference in your business. Yeah. Uh, being, I have a weird outlook on money. I believe that money is one of a human being's top three assets right up there with family and health. Uh, and when I'm in a business relationship with someone where I need to take money from someone, I need to make sure that I'm giving back so much more value uh, that I'm taking. This is something that David Meltzer talks about a lot. 
uh, and others. And this is something that at my core is true. And I'm constantly thinking about anytime I want to raise my prices, it's like, wait, I don't know how much value am I actually giving for this increase? Am I giving 10 times the amount of value than, that, that I'm receiving? Then I can do it. Uh, and I really just made the, the jump where I took my managed campaign services from $500 a month to $1,000 a month. And the reason why I did it was not because my ego said, oh, I'm worth more. Not at all. Uh, I still have a good ego, a strong ego, a big ego, uh, but it doesn't get involved in business. Well, at least I try to keep it out of business. Um, and instead, what happened was I realized that I had all of these add-on services and very few of my clients were taking them because I wasn't really pushing them. And then I had a few clients that asked me for those add-on services. And there's one add-on service in particular that helped them engage with potential clients, right? So say you know who your potential clients are. If you can find them on social media and comment on their posts and, and be a part of their community, they appreciate that. And yes. that opens up the door for a potential conversation about doing business together. Uh, so I had that uh, one of the services that was like an add-on to my content, to my content creation service. Uh, and some of my clients started using it and their accounts blew up financially, they started doing a lot, lot better. And I realized that I was selling half the service, half the solution. And I made the, the really tough, but good choice to raise my price from 500 to 1000 and include that at in the base service. Okay. Uh, and I, I was scared to do it, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And ultimately, I've been blown away by the results. Uh, my my client, you know, my customer retention rate continues to improve. From every time I I really improve the business and I pivot and I change, I see those numbers just tick up. Boom! More people yeah. staying. More people staying. Uh, and that's really how I know that I was doing doing it well. Is that you know, I had one client that without this service no way would have stayed with me more than a month because the last three weeks of the month, you know, for the first week he didn't, you know, I was still doing it the old way. And then I forced him to upgrade. And that three week difference made such a strong impact on the engagement rate of his own content that at first I thought I, I was going to lose him because he was not getting any engagement. And then that thing just really sparked this whole wave of engagement. And Thankfully, he's still a client. So you got to be careful on the money thing. Make sure that you're providing more value to people than you're receiving from them. And, and you know, improve that. Improve that and constantly improve the services. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, tell us your daily routine. And the second part of the question is because uh, I'm really interested in, in this stuff that uh, you being a uh, you being an Orthodox Jew, you don't touch your phones on Saturday and your entire business is related to social media. So how do you manage your uh, client relationship with that? Good. That's a good question. So, yes, uh, being an Orthodox Jew is makes my day look very, very different um, from your typical business owner. I probably work fewer hours um, than your average business owner uh, because I spend a lot more time on my religious activities. Um, yes. As far as I'm going to answer your second question first, because it's simpler. The second yeah. question is that 
all of my clients are um, in the professional world and professional are, they're only open Monday through Friday. So I'm, I'm good as far as that's concerned. And even whenever there are holidays that I do have to turn off my phone, uh, technology has allowed us to uh, pre-schedule posts, uh, whether you're yes. using Buffer or Hootsuite, any one of these platforms that uh, is meant for social media management. So I can queue up content for two weeks and not have to do anything and it. Just technology does it on its own. Uh, as far mm. as my daily schedule, uh, my daily schedule is 6.45 a.m. Wake up. Morning prayers at 7.15 till about 8, 8 to 9. Uh, I do some Jewish studies, religious studies. Uh, 9 to like 9.30, I make sure all of my clients are, their posts are out for the day and posted and everybody's taken care of for that day. 9.30 to 11.30, I go back to the synagogue, learn some more um, with a study partner, some more religious studies. 11.30 till 6.30 is work time. Um, okay. is, the, is the main bulk of the work time. Uh, and sorry about that. Uh, 11, 11.30 to, to 6.30 is the main bulk of the work time. And I make sure to focus on my existing clients first, uh, potential clients second, um, existing business first, potential businesses second. Uh, it's very important to have those priorities, especially when you're juggling time uh, and you're trying to make... Uh, you're trying to be as productive and impactful uh, as possible. Uh, so yeah, do it from 1130 to 630 and then have the dinner, have dinner with my wife, um, hang out there at home for a little bit. And then somewhere around nine o'clock, go back to synagogue, do some more studies uh, until about 1030 and do the evening prayers and then come home for the night. Uh, sometimes I work, after 6 30 um but p.m but i try not to um the i make up for it on sundays so this is filmed on a sunday to me sunday is a regular work day i don't care uh yeah. i have too much to, to accomplish to just chill out on sunday and watch football or whatever is playing on tv today yeah love you Hassan. <laughs> Uh, so I have one last question for you. I'm somebody Please. listening to this interview and I could be a 15-year-old boy or a 17-year-old girl or a 35-year-old man or woman, a business owner. And uh, maybe I want to say hi or maybe I just want to network with you or maybe I want to take a branding session with you, your consultation. Uh, which is the best place to contact Moshi? Uh, the best place to find me is on either Instagram or LinkedIn. LinkedIn is uh, where my main magic goes down. Uh, okay. And you can find me. The name is too tricky to find to spell. Uh, if you I'll link out how your to spell. I'll, li I'll link your social media in the description wherever you awesome, post it. So. Awesome, thank you. Uh, the easy way to find me is do hashtag LinkedIn Rabbi. There is only one LinkedIn Rabbi in the world, and that's me. <laughs> Am I actually a rabbi? No, but I looked the part, so I became a rabbi. Uh, mm. That's it. Mm -hmm.